Ante Up is your poker magazine dedicated to the everyday player and their poker rooms. Pick up a free copy at your favorite poker room nationwide each month. But Ante Up is much more than a magazine. Visit AnteUpMagazine.com daily for breaking news and each week download our award-winning poker cast. Join us on our action-packed poker cruises to exotic destinations. Ante Up, it's your poker magazine. From the Anti-Up headquarters in Tampa Bay, Florida, it's the Anti-Up PokerCast. And now, here are two guys who think they know how to play poker, Chris Casenza and Scott Long. It's February 9th, 2018. You listen to the greatest PokerCast that's ever invented. I'm Chris Casenza. And I'm Scott Long, and I'm wishing you a happy Groundhog Day. Oh, uh, oh no! Did you watch it that day? Uh, I watched bits of it, yes. Yeah, me too. I did not watch it all the way through. I had it on the background. On a loop. I, I on a loop. Ah! <laughs> I had it on a loop. Come on! Oh, man. You didn't like that joke? Uh, no, no, I did. I just don't like to give you any credit for it. <laughs> you never do. We should have a bipartisan agreement on this show <laughs> to laugh at each other's jokes. It'll be better for the Annie Up Nation. <laughs> well, there's no fairness in there because my jokes are a lot funnier, and I have a lot more of them. So, <laughs> you have the greatest jokes. I, I would have to uh, start laughing at like stuff that's not even funny from you. Like, <laughs> you have all the greatest jokes. Like, like uh, this reminds me of the time my house burnt down. I'd be to ah! <laughs> oh, tell me more. Tell me more. <laughs> oh man, you're killing me. <laughs> all right, so. Um... Uh, Remco Renkima, I'm guessing that's the name. I, who, that, that's the name I want, to be honest. Yeah, you, know, really. you, you know how boring it has been for 45 years, 46 years being Scott Long? But anyhow. <laughs> yes, it is boring. Remco Renkima, writing on PokerNews.com, asked this question. Uh, mixed games, do they belong in poker's past or present? He asked a number of pros to chime in uh, uh, with a column focusing mostly on high-stakes tournaments. and consensus seemed to be these events will never get bigger than they are. Uh, but there are some other interesting insights added. Uh, obviously, we are big mixed games fans, right? That has not changed. That has not changed. Uh, so we're not going to try to say, no, they're a thing of the past, right? No. <laughs> we're going to say there's still a chance that these games could get better and uh, introduce new people, right? The hardest part about mixed games, and I think he touches on this a little in the article, is just that it's so difficult to present it to the masses in sort of like a TV or even a you know, Twitch form or something, because, you know, some of the beauty of these games is that there are more streets, more exposed cards, lots to follow. A real poker mind can play this game, whereas the other games, you can, you know, flop games, you can pretty much hone in on one really good skill and, and use that skill to get yourself pretty far in that game, whereas you better be pretty well-rounded to be able to play horse or, or something like that. So uh, to that point, I don't think they're dead at all. I just think that, and that's the other thing too. Is like you said, he focused on the high stakes stuff too, which, yeah, okay. So the high stakes games, you know, only so so many people can afford those buy-ins and play all those games. So it's always been sort of a smallish, but that doesn't mean it's going away. I mean, I can't remember there being five hundred people in any kind of mixed game anything because not that many people are, <coughs> right, are that yeah. well versed in the games anyway. Um. But that's the thing, is if there's ever a way to 
to share the intricacies and the excitement of those games through a medium like television or internet where everyone can really follow it easily and, and get on board, then I think it might increase. But I don't think it's gonna. I don't think it's decreasing. I think the more what happens is there's so many people. This this is this is conjecture. That's my my opinion. I don't. <laughs> but there are so many people playing Hold'em that they all get hooked like I did because you were playing poker before I did. As far as for money and stuff, I played when I was a kid with my parents and family stuff, but never Hold'em. But Hold'em gets them hooked, and then they they realize after a while there's more than Hold'em. So the percentage of the people who play Hold'em it, it'll still feed those mixed games. There are going to be players who are so good that they realize, holy cow, I'm really good at poker. You know, what are these other games where the other guys aren't that good? You know, so if they don't know the game as well, maybe I can thrive there. Or whenever I get to the poker room, there's never a seat for Hold'em. There might be a seat in these other games, so it would benefit me to learn more games. So I think the percentage seems to be relative to the percentage of people who actually play the games now. So when you look at... The fields of No Limit Hold'em, a thousand people. Then you look at the fields of Horse, a hundred, ten percent. So I think somewhere between ten and five percent, five and ten percent, I think are the size of these fields for these mixed events versus the the overall Hold'em and even Parliament Omaha. So I think that's about right. If you get five hundred guys who this generation, if you get is for a round number, five hundred guys getting introduced to the game, I think a good 50 to 100 of them will be like, you know, Hold'em's not the only thing. I love poker. I'm in love with poker. What else is out there? And then they fall in love with Stud 8 because they read Todd Brunson's chapter, and everyone who reads Todd Brunson's chapter falls in love with Stud 8. So, I don't know. I think I think that's the way to go. I think that, I think that the game is going to stay where it is. Plateaued is kind of a hard thing because I don't think it ever really increased. I think it's always been this sort of percentage. <laughs> it's just point. that the fields are are so much larger that the percentage is still the same. So I don't know. I don't, do you think it's, I don't think it's dying though. Well, I think what's interesting, I, I thought this was a really good column. Um, yeah. I would say that I, I, it would have been better if it wasn't posed as a question, you know, cause I, I don't yeah. think we're trying to solve a question. Do they belong um, in poker's past or present? It, it got me to click on the article. So <laughs> I'll give them that. But yeah, well, really, it's just talking about what's the challenges in having these games. Um, and again, obviously, this column is geared toward the high roller thing. So all these comments are like, you know, hey, we get 45 people in a $25,000 buy-in mixed game. Um, to be honest, I'm actually more surprised that they don't get more at the pro level. I would think there's a lot more pros that feel comfortable playing these games at that level than if we had a, you know, $50 <laughs> horse yeah, event somewhere yeah. right here. So, um but uh, the column also gave some really good uh, – what I like. There was a couple things in here I really thought like. Uh, one, uh, this Stephen uh, Chidwick, who's been on kind of a little heater here lately. Um, I like this point that he made where he said uh, the skill gap is smaller in mixed games. I mean, he essentially said, you know, hey, you know, there's so much material out there and software for No Limit Hold'em now that people have become really good at it but really similar uh, – uh, I mean, it, so if you if like an amateur is really going to have a trouble beating a pro now in No Limit because of just the the amount of information they have, but there isn't all that stuff out there um, for mixed games, so you have a better chance of evening the field a little bit. So for a beginner, it's a good way of getting in and and, and having a chance. As scary as these games sound, um, 
but that's always been the problem, right? You know, they're all, I mean, no limit hold'em is easy to, easy to learn, easy to understand. You know, I'm doing a little poker party here in a couple of weeks for some guys and, uh, I asked them what their skill level was. And they're like, no skill. <laughs> yeah. And I'll be able to explain the limit hold'em to them like within 30 minutes and then have them playing. Right. Um, but, uh, to sit down and have them play Omaha or stud, you're not gonna be able to do that in 30 minutes. So, um, one, because it's confusing, and two, because people just don't have that attention span to learn it, you know? You know, I love to learn, um, you know, you think of any language you'd like to learn, Yeah, you're gonna, it's going to be a whole lot easier to get people to learn one that's similar to the one you already know, rather than, like, Mandarin. Right. Now. right. So, so I think that's kind of the same thing here. Um, I, I would be interested to see if we could do the same kind of article on, like, the amateur level. Um because there are some places where, you know, you can still get a stud game and uh, still get an Omaha game. Um, you know, I, you, you look at the where to play listings in our magazine every month. It's always interesting to me when I see, a you know, a weekly pineapple tournament or a yeah. Mexican poker or whatever. Um, th- th- it's regional. So, you know, depending on where you live, that game is a lot more popular than um, other places. So, um Again, it's not a question to be solved, I don't think. But uh, I will say, I will agree that I don't, I don't see any growth in it. Um, yeah. You know, people people are intrigued by PLO and and we'll try that. But I don't see a lot of people intrigued in learning to play stud now. <laughs> well, the, the go-to answer that we always seem to bring up here too is. If we ever get federal regulation of online poker, people will be more willing to try out these games at penny stakes or whatever, dime stakes, whatever they are, and then maybe fall in love with the game. You get more exposure right. to the game, you know, through your own bedroom or your own living room playing poker without, you know, and then without the, or with a cover of an, anonymity, you know, of, you know, if you make a mistake, they're going to, what are they going to do? They're going to rail the guy named AU12112, or are they going to, you know, they don't know who you are. So, um, but the, you know that's another thing that could contribute to at least having an uptick in some of these fields. The high stakes stuff, you know, I, whatever. I mean, there's not a lot of people out there who can even afford those stakes anyway. So much less do it and then do it in a difficult field. Like you said, the skill levels in those fields, they're all pretty pretty even. So why would someone want to try their hand at something when they know everybody out there is all the same? They're all very good and they're all going to kick your butt. You know, there's no weak. You are the weak link at that table. You know, you're the the rube, like the rounder saying about you yeah. know, look around the table for the fish. So, I don't know. I, I I do think online poker could still help that. I think that's what helped it grow in the first place. I think that's the reason why, when they did show those games on ESPN at the time, is because there was online poker then, and there was the money for it, and there were people getting involved, and more people were entering those events than ever before. Even though it's still not a lot of people. It was still more than before, and now it's sort of come back down again because of that. So you combine some way to show it through another medium, like you know, like Twitch or online, or people who are already interested in poker are following that and saying, "Oh, let me give this a, a view." And then you also maybe you could put it on regular TV and then get the internet back. You know, internet poker. I think, I think that could help it. But no, I don't think it's a game of the past. I just think it's always been that game that's there. That you know, it's almost like a secret club almost, and I don't think it's going to go away. Mm, good points. Yeah. Um, well, Sam Greenwood, fresh off a of victory in a four-handed $50,000 buy-in super high roller event in Australia. Today's a super high roller show, right? Yeah. Uh, he took Twitter to complain about players who wait to scope out the field before entering super high roller events. 
And then followed by saying players should also help to start games and show up on time. Uh, since neither of us will ever have a chance to even, <coughs> even scope out a super high roller event, Chris. What do we think about players in everyday tournaments who wait to see how the field develops before buying in? Uh, you know, I I don't know. As the businessman, that bothers me because, you know, you want the field to be as large as possible for your tournaments that you're hosting on your ship or something. You know, so you want them to play. You want them to commit because you want everyone to be happy. Uh, as the player, I can see looking at the field and being like, do I really want to play for, you know, 12 players and, you know, barely get my money back if I, you know, whatever. So, I mean, there are some points to both sides of this. I don't think I'll I'll come down hard on anyone, you know, who wants to scope out a field. You know, if I show up at the local poker room and I want to play in a tournament and then there's nobody there and they're like, well, we'll have a one table if you want. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I came here to play all day. I didn't come here to play for four knockouts and then get in the money and chop and be there out of there in 45 minutes. So I can understand that, um, especially if, you know, if you're going to travel for this tournament, then you're going to probably play it because you've put in the time, you've put in the the money for the if it's airfare or something like that, you're definitely going to play because you're not going to waste that money. You want a chance to get some of it back. But if it's like, you know, 20 minute drive to your local poker room and the tournament's not what it wants to be, I'm jumping in a cash game. So I don't know. I, I don't, I don't really fault them because you know what else too? They're offering it. If they're offering late registrants, then you have every right to scope out and see how many people are going to play in this thing. So if the poker room wants to host late registration, there's nothing wrong with taking advantage of the late registration. If you want to see that stop, don't offer late registration. Yeah, this is one of those symptoms and disease arguments, I think. You know, you you can treat the symptom that the disease still is there. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I guess I kind of agree with you. I mean, I, I'm, I'm more on Sam's side here, but I would say that the flip side is that you know, it's my money, so if the rules say that I can enter an hour after the start and I want to make sure that the players in that field are beatable before I commit my $100, there's nothing stopping me from doing that. And, it, it, and it's probably wrong to criticize somebody for doing that. I, I think what Sam's underlining point, though, was uh, is that is it good for the game for players to take advantage of that freedom to wait? Um, because those tournaments might get off the ground, or they might wait to see, um, you know, how close you are to the guarantee. Um, uh, I, I guess it's par- part of it is just how I operate. I, I, I never like to late reg for tournaments. I mean, if I'm running late, um, or if, uh, if I just got off the plane and got there and, hey, there's a tournament going on and I can still get in, okay, yeah, that'll be happy to jump in. But if I know the tournament starts at 11 a.m. and I'm sitting in my hotel room, uh, till noon before I walk down to enter, I just don't do that. So um, I've spent a lot of time in tournaments, kind of like Sam here, where we had three people at a table because <laughs> we know it's going to fill up. So that's why the poker room spreads that many tables. And it ends up filling up, but for 20, 30 minutes, we're playing three-handed or four-handed or whatever. Um, While well, you see players over in cash games, like finishing their cash hands or, or grabbing something like that. So it... I, I understand the rudeness argument of it, um, but there's also, I think, another level that um, it, you know, poker rooms need to get 
players in the tournaments to keep them going. That's why we've seen late reg and re-entry and all this other stuff because players keep arguing for bigger prize pools and bigger fields. And, and if you shotgun a tournament off at 11 a.m. and don't let anybody in when they're late, the fields aren't going to be very big. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's really a catch-22. But, um, you know, if you take away a little bit of the uh, the snideness of Sam's tweets, um, you know, I think it's making a good point that, you know, hey, just come and show up, and that helps. Um, by milling around isn't helping. Um, so, I, I mean, are we kind of saying that it's when people are scoping these out, it's kind of an angle shooting? In a different, that would be his argument. Yeah, uh, you know, because I mean, he's talking about these super high rollers. Um, you know, he wants to see, you know, if, if the field's really strong, then these players don't want to plunk down twenty five thousand. If there's a couple fish in there, then they're willing to jump in, but they don't want to be the first one to sign up. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I, I think you could argue that that's an angle shot. Uh, I don't think it's an egregious one, but it is right. an angle. Um. You know, if that's the reason that you're waiting to get in is to wait and see what the field looks like, that's different than, well, I just went an extra hour of sleep this morning. Right, 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 right. Because and you're you're not playing the, you're not playing the the, the the poker room for its its rules. You're you've overslept or made a mistake and you're showing up or you you know you know you're gonna play. You just felt you just want to do something before you get there or whatever. It's different to get there and look at the field and be like, eh. But at the same time, like I said, no one can tell you what to do with your money. And if if you show up at a poker room and it's not what you think it's going to be, you know, maybe you get into a cash game and you wait for the registration and keep going. And if it upticks, you get out of the cash game and you go play, you know, or I don't know. Like sometimes on our cruises, people try to get, you know, like tournaments together or something and they can't get enough people to do it. And some people will be like, well, I'll play if you get it, you know, whatever. And it's like, I can understand that. Who wants to get out of a juicy cash game to go into a tournament that's, going to be 12 people you know or something so um i don't know I don't, I don't really have a problem with it uh from a player standpoint i really don't i think your money and your bankroll and you've got to be diligent with it and you've got to know your roi is is you know is worth the effort so but i can see some people getting upset by it but you know i think this world will be a lot better if people stop getting upset about things and just try to find solutions to things yeah there is that um i'll say the one example i always remember from the local tournaments when i used to go pretty regularly is we'd sit there in a tournament that had i don't know 12 people 20 people whatever it it didn't have as many people as it should have right Mm -hmm. and then you'd be calling over to some of your your friends that are the cash cables and hey why don't you get in on this and they look up they're like yeah there's just not enough money in it yet for me yeah um you know, once you get to like forty players, and I'll jump in. And so the problem with that is that you got a bunch of people probably sitting around waiting for that number to get there. And if everybody would just buy in, you'd get to that number, and you wouldn't have to worry about it. And then you get more play out, and you'd enjoy the tournament more, I think. Um, and, and the players that register early would definitely enjoy it as much before, as more than they would before. So, right, right. Um, it's kind of like a, a pack mentality, you know. Yeah. But but interesting discussion. Well, See what happens. Yeah. Okay, any updates? Once again, we can't thank enough all of the poker venues and players and our partner, Blue Shark Optics, for making our annual Restock the Shells event such a success. This year, our combined efforts provided meals for 95,928 people for a four-year total now of 295,419 meals. It's just uh, humbling. 
Yeah, not bad at all. And um, we, I, I think our participation in terms of venues this year was off by maybe one or two. So, or actually, no, I'm sorry, probably more than that. Um, so it's even more impressive um, that we were able to break our record yet again um, and, and really do a lot here. I think our first year, it's like 40 or something when we started this out. So now we right. doubled. And one of the real exciting things, and the reason I think we did so well this year, even though we didn't have as many rooms participating, is that the rooms um, that participate um, or have over the last couple of years, they're really getting into it now. And, you know, they look forward to it every year. They always uh, call or email me a couple months ahead of time. And I'm like, are you doing it again? We're, we're ready. Um, and they're, they compete against themselves to do better than they did the, the year before. Yeah. So, yeah. Some of these rooms, I mean, we had, uh, I'm looking at the numbers here, one room, uh, $4,400 in cash. You know, I mean, we had people bringing in cans, but they that's how much cash their players donated. Um, and those are just amazing numbers. Um, I think the most we had in cans were like, a couple rooms had 2,000 pounds of food. Um, so. Um, and, and those were, um, those both were rooms that did last year and did well and just, you know, did better because, you know, now they, they're learning what works and how they expand it. And it also helped too that, that this year we, ate, we made it run the entire month as well too. So player, I mean, not that we really held anybody back from doing that in the past, but we, we were clear about, Hey, you know, take the whole month if you want this year. So that yeah. helped yeah. too. So, um, hopefully all those organizations across uh, North America, um, are appreciative of our efforts. Um, and I, I certainly am appreciative of everybody that participates. So just a fantastic event. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this Saturday is your chance to win an Annie Up Poker Cruise and get your face on the cover of Annie Up Magazine as TG Poker and Racebook in Tampa, Florida ends its Annie Up Poker uh, Tour Set Sales Series with a $50 tournament at 7 p.m. The top two finishers get a cruise package for our March 8th sailing out of Tampa, and the winner gets on the cover. For more details, visit tgtpoker.com. Each week, we spotlight a listener who emails us at podcast.antiupmagazine.com, and if they haven't won something from us in the past year, just like we do with Call the Floor and Hand of the Week, we send them something cool. This is Chuck McCann. This comes from our Annie Up Fans page on Facebook. Don't forget, you can join. We've got a good 300 people on there or so right now, so it's growing every day. Uh, I guess the Atlantic City Boardwalk is finally dead for tournament players. I went down on three-day MLK Day weekend and registered for the 3 p.m. 1K guarantee at Bally's, and it was canceled by 310 for lack of interest. I walked to the Tropicana for the 7.15 p.m. tournament, and it was canceled. I went back on Monday morning for the 10.15 tournament, and it was canceled. Cash tables practically empty, too. What a shame. Uh, Yes, a shame indeed. Um... You know, I always Atlantic City was never my kind of city. I mean, uh, it, it's not where I would have normally gone, but I, it was always interesting to go. And um, you know, I've been there four or five times now since we started the company. And you know, it's nice to walk in the boardwalk, and and it, so it is really, but <laughs> it is a, it's a shame that you can't really get a, a poker game on the boardwalk now. When we first went, you had the Taj Mahal, which was massive, right? Yep. Um, uh, in the Tropicana did well. You had Harris, Harris, yeah. yeah. Well, they're doing have poker rooms now. Um, and it was really convenient because you can. It was kind of like the Vegas Strip. You know, if you didn't like a game here, you could walk, you know, forty feet down there and get another game or another tournament. And <laughs> and now all the action is is off the boardwalk. Um, and really the action in general in Atlantic City is down drastically because uh, the proliferation of other rooms around. You know, parks and 
and um, some of the other Pennsylvania uh, and, rooms. And the Delaware yeah. and Connecticut, it just they all just peeled off. And it seems like every um, every week now a new casino opens in New York. New you know, York, we have yeah. Big resorts world that we mentioned uh, recently up in um, the Catskills um, that I'm looking forward to going to up in April and checking it out. But that's another big room, and you know, we've talked about this on the show before too. But Atlantic City really kind of didn't help itself. Um, you know, it kind of got you know comfortable with the fact that people had to come there to gamble. Um, and then when people had a choice to go somewhere else, they didn't change um, and then, you know, try to keep the players that they had or attract new players. Um, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like the newspaper industry that we got out of, isn't it? Yeah. You know, for the longest time, you know, newspapers didn't have to work to turn a profit. And then all of a sudden, when you had competition, they they buckled down on what they knew and it just made the problem worse. So, um uh, I think the good news, though, is that uh, uh, the Hard Rock will be opening there soon, and uh, that's a brand that's always very big into poker. So maybe that brings uh, will bring new life to the boardwalk. But um, I don't know. It it is really a shame how different it's been since the first time I went, and I I was never there in the heyday. You know, back in the Rounders area, you right. know, and right. seventy tables going strong. So um, it's a different world. Well, I think Chuck's problem was that he just uh, kind of scoped out the tournaments. He didn't actually sign <laughs> up. If you just sign up right away. If you sign up right away, they would have, I want Chuck's money. They would have flocked and had a full field. So, yeah, <laughs> it, it is a shame. And I, I remember feeling so nostalgic when you and I were there and just seeing the rooms and seeing the history and just being like, ah, it's such a shame. Because even then when we went, it was doing okay. It wasn't too bad. I mean, Harris had a decent night going. And even at the time, even the Taj had – a decent amount of games going when we visited caesars had a big room but it wasn't there was no there were no tables going at the time but you know of course borgata was cranking like it always did it's just a shame it's a shame to see it go like that and i don't know never know maybe they'll have some sort of rally find yourself in a situation at your favorite poker room or home game not sure what the proper ruling should have been email us at podcast and com. we'll have hollywood casino toledo director of poker elliot Schechter tell you how he would have ruled comes from paul rolston haven't heard from him in a while. Yeah. He says, we were in a tournament in a venue that does not normally spread poker. The tournament directors are experienced with poker, but the dealers are not. On the river, the short stack who is to the right of the dealer moves all in. The player to the left of the dealer with a big stack is considering the call. He is doing his chip dance. He counts out the call amount, places it to one side of his cards, and then starts to count the balance of his stack, still deciding. As he does this, the dealer moves the call amount into the pot. The all-in player asks if uh, if it was a call. The dealer says yes, and the player turns over his cards. At this point, the big stack says he did not call. The dealer has acted, not the player, and this act has left the all-in player with his cards exposed. Two tournament directors huddle and agree that the cards are live and the big stack has all his options open to him. The big stack knows he is winning, officially calls the all-in, and the player is knocked out. I think they were stone cold wrong. Just like the First Amendment is paramount, first among equals uh, and a guiding principle, so too is Rule 1, right? And in this case, Rule 1 specifically says common sense and fairness supersede more narrow technical rules. This all-in player was comprised by a frankly, I think it compromised, uh, by a frankly outrageous action by a clearly undertrained, inexperienced, and unqualified dealer. His tournament life should not be lost because the dealer was a moron. What the choice should have been, I do not know. 
I'm pretty sure you can't declare the hands dead and chop the pot since there were other folded out players' chips in the pot. But I propose that fairness would be to withdraw the last all-in bet and play the hand down only with what was already in the pot. Still not totally fair, but at least equitable. One way or another, I have to feel that any choice that addressed the dealer's mistake and protected the players from those consequences would seem fair. <clears throat> All right, this is going to be an interesting one, I think. Yeah. Elliot says, oh, what fun. <laughs> uh, the result of the hand was correct, even if the process was mangled by the staff running the tournament. TDA Rule 2 covers player responsibilities and states. Players should verify registration data and seat assignments, protect their hands, make their intentions clear, Follow the action, act in turn with proper terminology and gestures, uh, defend their right to act, keep cards visible and chips correctly stacked, remain at the table with a live hand, table all cards properly when competing at showdown, speak up if they see a mistake, call for a clock when warranted, transfer tables promptly, follow one hand, uh, one player to a hand, no one comply with the rules, practice proper etiquette, etiquette and generally contribute to an orderly event. Player B, the one on the left of the dealer, neither made their intentions clear, nor did he speak up when a mistake was made. From what you described, I must assume that when player B cut out the chips that equal to call, uh, places it to one side of his cards meant that he placed them on the side closer to the dealer and not seat two. When those chips were moved to the pot, it was player B's responsibility right then to speak up and say that he hadn't acted yet. Action was offered and accepted when no one spoke up until the end of the showdown. Player A is not without fault here either, as they completely depended on the dealer for any and all information as opposed to paying attention to the game on the table. Just because the dealer is sitting between the two players that were in the pot does not absolve any player from the basic responsibilities of hand protection. If player A didn't want their tournament life on the line in that spot, then player A shouldn't have made an all-in bet. A dealer error does not change the rules of betting. Player B's failure to follow the rules set down in Rule 2 does not mean that player B never gets to win all the chips in the pot due to dealer error. Player A was all in, and while that was regrettable, the decision was about player B accepting the action of player A. Since player B did not speak up until well after they were supposed to, his call um, was enforced. This is a rare case where the decision came down in player A's favor, but the result eliminated player A. Yeah. That's tough. Uh, I mean, that's the other thing, too, is that's what you get for this whole chip dance that he alluded to earlier yeah. you know you're taking your time and you're putting chips and you're going over and you're trying to hollywood and all, thinking about whatever it is you're doing meanwhile you, you know you have an experienced dealer as you're in the poker room that isn't really a poker room that doesn't really spread poker you know there's a, a chance for mistakes to be made maybe you should be just a little more careful with what you're doing the, the, the bad thing is that the guy might have folded and and then the, the guy would have gotten away with his shove and not gotten knocked out you know you see that elliot says in there but if he didn't really want to put his life on the line he shouldn't have but it, that is also, you know, hey, all in bets put them to a decision. Now he's gotten exposed because of no fault of his own, really. When I play poker, I try to, especially tournament poker, I try to let the dealer tell me what to do rather than just turn my cards over because that's what you're supposed, you know, you know, you know you're supposed to turn your cards over when it's done or when it's going. But until they say, okay, turn your cards over, I don't do it um, just as a precaution. Um, but, but, but Elliot's right. This is this is the right ruling as, as bitter as it is or as clunky as they were to get to it. Uh, yeah, I love the last line uh, that this decision came down in players a, player A's favor, but the result eliminated player A. Yeah. Uh, you know, again, no winners here, and this this happens from time to time. Um, and you know, particularly this is, as Paul described, a room where these dealers are inexperienced. So um, from a player perspective, I would say when you realize that, then I think you need to be even on heightened level 
at the game, right? And really be careful um, and ask questions. So in this case, I mean, the player did ask whether he was all in, and the dealer incorrectly said yes. But the player didn't wait, as you mentioned, for the dealer to say, expose your hands. Um, and I would have, in that case, made sure I asked. I'm like, yeah, it probably wouldn't have saved, uh, changed anything because the dealer thought the guy was all in. But um, at least, you know, asking whether it's time to expose my hand might have helped whatever that time was. Yeah. <laughs> Pot correct at some point. So, um, so as much as I like when Elliot gives us these answers, too, I also think I obviously look back at, at it and try to figure out if I'm in that situation in the future, what can I do to prevent being in that situation in the future? And I think that that was a big thing here is the players paid money to get into a tournament at a room that doesn't spread it with inexperienced dealers. And you just have to have your spidey senses on it all the time and just, you know, ask and then clarify even, you know, um, and watch players, too. I mean, again, this is this it, it really sucks that you're when you're in those that one in 10 seats uh, in between the dealer. Uh, it's really hard to be a responsible player because it's hard to see but mm. when you're sitting in those seats then you you know that it is going to be harder so you need to pay a little bit more attention than you are if you're in seat five right yeah and you know it doesn't make anything right but it does help you get into the situation uh, out of the situation uh, not have the situation happen to begin with to have a problem so well the best part about this is that we have another entry into the scott long any of dictionary of etiquette yes what's etiquette i don't know but i love it it's french it's right next to Ajus. <laughs> we have a new O'Malley's move. Here it comes. Hello, and welcome to another O'Malley's move. I'm Malcolm O'Malley. This week we're still at that friendly, low-stakes, five-cent, ten-cent game. It's about an hour after the hand from last episode, and we're under the gun at a seven-handed table with one player away from the table. There's a button straddle. The small blind and big blind fold, and we look down at the king of spades, queen of spades. Pretty good hand with only six active players, and this is also a hand I like to play for a raise against a button straddler. We raise to 60 cents with $23 behind. The player to our left calls. This player is fairly new to the game. He plays a confusing style. Sometimes he walks away up three to four buy-ins. Other times he's lost. But after he loses one buy-in, he's typically done for the night. He sits with $15 and can legitimately have any two cards in this situation. Seriously, he could have anything. The rest of the table folds, including the button, and with $1.55 in the pot, the flop is a familiar one. The king of diamonds, jack of diamonds, ten of hearts comes down. Almost exactly like last episode's flop. Well, we have top pair and an open-ended straight draw. I don't see any reason to be scared. We make it $1 even. Our opponent calls. With $3.55 in the pot, the turn is just downright eerie. The jack of spades comes down. Can anyone say deja vu? Being out of position in this situation isn't a great feeling, and our opponent could very well have a jack here, but he could also very well have garbage or a draw. If he has some kind of a draw, I want to make him pay for it. This is a rare instance where I like to overbet. We make it $4 to go. Our opponent thinks for a while before calling. There's $11.55 in the pot, and the river brings a mix of emotions. It's the ace of hearts. 
Now here's the problem. We currently sit with 1740, while our opponent has 940. There's 1155 in the pot. We could do some kind of value blocker bet for 3 or $4, but I just get the sense that even if he has nothing, he's going to shove over the top of that. We could shove, but something about his demeanor tells me that's a snap call waiting to happen. I hate being out of position. We check. Our opponent immediately states, same bet, and throws in $4. Is curiosity going to get the better of us here? What's the move? It's time for the VansPokerTraining.com Hand of the Week. Send your hands or situations to podcast at antiupmagazine.com. If you haven't won something from us in the past year, you'll get a free membership to Advanced Poker Training, the world's number one poker training site. Dean Ratcliffe is back. Yes. And uh, all right, he said uh, uh, this might be more of a situation of the week round than the Hand of the Week. In regards to what I should do when, when first act on the river, I feel the rest of the decisions are pretty straightforward unless you want to discuss Discuss bet sizing now. I think I remember when I read this that I actually thought there was a lot more to it than he thought. So we're going to treat this like a normal hand of the week and see how it goes. Okay. All right. So this is a regular $25 bar league tournament in the second level, which is 5100 And uh, with no significant hand so far, everyone is around their starting stack of 30000 Take a seven-handed. Uh, under the gun raises to 300 Under the gun plus one calls. And we are next to act with King of Diamonds, King of Hearts. Okay, well, it seems pretty, uh, you know, it's, it's early in the tournament. People aren't really getting out of line usually at this point. It's still, like he said, it's nothing significant going on. So generally the rule of thumb is 3x, and then if another person calls, add that on top of it. So if you're going to make it 900 plus 300 is 1,200. So you got 30,000 chips, 1,200 raise is pretty standard, pretty uh, pretty normal. I'd make it twelve hundred probably. The hell? That's exactly what I was going to say. Yay! Can't even give you an argument. Sorry. Love the bipartisanship on our part. <laughs> it's spreading across the country now. <laughs> uh, all right, Dean says uh, raising seems the only decision here. I want to thin the field by discouraging any more callers behind me. I raised to eleven hundred. All right. Close enough for me. Yeah. Uh, cut off folds, but the button calls. He says I'm a little surprised by him calling a three bet cold with an undergun razor still to act. Both blinds fold, and then uh, the other gun, under gun plus one, both call. Oof. So four-handed, going to the flop, pot of forty-five fifty, and the flop is a deuce of clubs, deuce of hearts, seven of hearts. And under the gun, and under gun plus one, both check, and it is on us. Well, I mean, you got to like that flop. Unless someone's playing the do seven game, and you know, it's a cash game. I know, I always hate that because of that, right? I always think, you know, there's always some joker at the table that plays that game. But usually <laughs> it's a cash game because they get paid for it or something. That's In a tournament, that doesn't happen. So I'm not really worried about that. Could somebody have a suited ace deuce, maybe? Maybe. But did they really want to call? You know, I, I don't think the under the gun would do that. Maybe he does. I don't know. Under the gun plus one, would he really call a raise with a suited ace deuce? Maybe this early on. But we can't just play that way. We can't say, oh, this is really a good flop for kings. So I'll bet. I'll bet like, uh, I don't know, three grand. I like it. That's probably about right. Three, yeah, I might even go with 35, but, but okay. 3,000 sounds good to me. Yeah. Um, all right, our hero says, uh, this is a great flop for my hand. It's unlikely anyone has a deuce in a three-bet pot, and ace-ace doesn't make sense for any of my opponents based on their pre-flop action. 7-7 seven, seven is in all of their ranges, but it's only one hand among many. 
I want to bet for value and also make uh, any flush draws pay. I bet 3500 There you go. Doing pretty good. Yeah, he's right. This is pretty standard. <laughs> At this uh, point. <clears throat> the button thinks briefly before calling. I've played with his opponent before, and he can have a wide range here. Pocket pair doesn't believe me and wants to see what I do on the turn. Trapping with either trips or a full house. Flush draw. Even floating with airs. He does, uh, does get aggressive against perceived weakness on later streets. The other two players fold. So we are heads up with 11,550 in the pot. And the turn is the eight of diamonds. So our board is deuce of clubs, deuce of hearts, seven of hearts, eight of diamonds. And we, of course, are first act now. Well, let me ask you something. If you were, if you were on the button and you saw a raise, a call, and a re-raise, would you call with ace deuce suited, knowing that the under the gun and under the gun plus one are still behind you now, plus the blinds left to act? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think so. I, I don't think so either. But at the same time, this is hand of the week. Um, but <laughs> but no, I, what I was going to say too is that um, maybe the guy's hoping that the other guys are going to call and his ace deuce is going to be the right one to try to flop a a flush or get a flush draw and get a big pot out of it. And so early on that, you know, 1100 preflop is not that big a deal when you have 30, 35,000 in your stack and it's a borrow league. We have to remember that too. It's a borrow league. Now, $25 tournament is still, a, you know, you're still putting money up. So it's not a free league, but you know, there's a chance this guy has a deuce. There is a chance. Um, so I'm wondering, do you think maybe a check is in order here? And if he does want to bluff at it, like he was, you know, uh, floating, and he makes the bet that we're supposed to make here, then we right. get away with just calling it, not being re-raised and forced off this hand. Because if we're going to make a pot, like a half-pot bet of, I don't know, six and a half, six thousand, six and a half thousand, something like that, then you can't imagine this guy, if you checked him, is going to bet much more than that either. So maybe you check call and then see if the river, you know, brings another scare card for him or... Or maybe something helps you, or whatever. So maybe another deuce comes, and you don't believe him. Now you've got deuces full of kings. So who knows? But I think maybe a check might be in order here. I probably would still bet. I'm just trying to explore all the angles. Yeah. I probably would still bet. But if I think this guy might bet what I was thinking about betting, maybe I just check. And But if I do that, I might be losing value on this rare hand that you don't get all the time. So I don't know. I can go either way um, on this, but I don't know. Maybe I'll... Maybe I'll bet, and if he calls, then I'll shut it down on the river and see what he does on the river. But um, right now, if I'm willing to make a bet, I could also go with check calling that bet. So let, let's just bet like six grand. Yeah, I think the check uh, call is an interesting thing to discuss a little bit more because, um, you know, I don't know what card's going to come on the river that's really going to hurt us. It, the possibility that he's got like ace king of hearts or something like that and he's still so hard could hurt um but uh, you know either we have him beat now and the chances of him catching up are minuscule or he has us crushed and our chances of catching up are minuscule right right um and it seems more likely that we're ahead so you know i'm not too worried about the free card if that's what happens um but i do think you're right but now definitely based on the way that dean's described this guy that he likes to get aggressive against perceived weakness on later streets. So um, we might end up getting more money 
overall out of this hand by checking here and letting him take a swing now and then depending what river comes we make a decision there how we want to play it but um there, there yeah. are you're right though this is this is more than a situation because like you said there is the draw of the the hearts that he could have two hearts in his hand he could have a suited ace three of hearts or something you know or ace 10 and that that is in the back of your mind that this guy got in for a decent suited ace that wasn't worth re re raising with, and now he's flopped a, a flush draw. So there's also that argument to bet it. Um, so like I said, I think I said I'd bet six six and a half. Um, but I, I if I got a good read on the guy, like he said he could have any two cards. Maybe it's not hearts, and he's just trying to to float us. Maybe we do check and and if he checks behind, then you're like, damn, I missed a street. You know, but at the same time, you might he might bluff at you if he's he said he's known to do that when he perceives weakness. So maybe you check and get that bet out of him. Um, but if he's somebody who's turned over in your past, he's turned over you know a suited ace a lot. You know, then maybe you want to make a bet here and make him pay. So I guess it really all depends on all of that. Yeah, because I mean, if he's got a, a busted hand here, he's not improved at all. If he would bet again now, you know, unless we know he's a really aggressive player that would raise that bet. He, he might fold here, yeah. and we get out of it by checking him, <clears throat> take a swing at us. We at least get that value out, and then, like I said, we don't know what's going to happen on the river yet. We got a lot of options, so um, yeah, I, I, I think I, in the heat of the moment, I would just fired at another five, six thousand or something here. But now that I think about it, I, I think I really like the the check and check call here. Yeah, let's see. All right, uh, our hero says, my, unless he had an 8-8, eight, eight, that card doesn't change anything. As on the flop, I want to bet for value and price out a flush draw. If he has one, I bet 7000 All right, so conventional. Yeah. Uh, the button again, thinks briefly before calling. I suddenly, I suddenly find this action very suspicious. This player is good enough to know that he's not getting the right price for a flush draw, so I'm discounting that. Uh, he probably also knows that I have a big pair here, and he can't call me down with a lower pair. And if he was floating the flop, he'd ra- he'd have raised this turn. My gut feel is he's trapping me here, and I'm preparing to check the river and see what he does. Mm, some of those thoughts are... I, I mean, I, I don't necessarily know if somebody's floating if they raise you the turn. You know, a lot of times they float because they know you're going to check the turn because you just did your normal C-bet and miss at your ace-king, and that's when they steal it from you. If you're willing to put out a pretty healthy bet, and you only have thirty grand to start this hand, you put up eleven hundred, you know what I mean. Then you put up thirty-five, so now you've got forty-six in this, and now you've got thirteen thousand into this pot of your thirty thousand. They don't think you're bluffing on that turn, and they're going to raise you now. So I'm not so cer- certain that the floater is going to raise the turn there. Uh, I think he folds if you continue to bet into him, or he calls and then tries to get you on the river if he's really, really resilient you know if he if he really has balls then he might do that but in this case no i i don't think he's floating you now um not because he called but because i just if he's floating he would have folded so and he wouldn't have raised i don't think so but yeah this is it's curious because and i don't know about the whole flush draw thing either if he's hoping you have a big over pair and then he he's got the implied odds of hitting that and then you you see another like a five on a blank five or something. You might be emboldened to shove now with your kings or bet another big bet, and then he's got that flush that he, you know, what I mean. So I'm not necessarily sure that he needs to have the right odds to call if he thinks that you have you do have that overpair and he can felt you. So yeah, yeah, but yeah, 
I, I, but I think we're getting dangerously close to not having any implied odds left here. I mean, we started with 30,000, which is funny because it's 5,100 level. You never thought you would get this part. Yeah, yeah. Right? But, you know, so, I mean, we, uh, we put uh, 7, 12, 13,000. Yeah, 13 already in. So, I mean, I guess there's oh, 17,000 is pretty yeah. big implied yeah. odds. Um, but again, you have to assume that he's going to get that out of us too. Which yeah. at this point, I'm like, you know, if a heart comes here, I don't think a hand that doesn't have a heart, I mean, two hearts, is going to be eager to call off all their chips either. So, yeah, uh, that's the other thing about implied odds. People think about is that forget about it, is that if you hit your hand, that that person is actually going to pay you off, and you have to factor in whether they're going to pay you off and at what level they're going to pay you off. So, um, hmm. all right, um. All right, so we go to the river. Heads up, pops twenty five thousand five hundred. Huge. And the river is the king of clubs. Our final board is deuce of clubs, deuce of hearts, seven of hearts, eight of diamonds, king of clubs, bingo, bango, bongo. <laughs> Tiki Tavi never caught on. I always thought that was pretty good. <laughs> oh man! Well, there are two ways to play this. Obviously, um, you could just bet. Uh, an amount you think he'll call, or you could check and see if his his uh, you know perce- he thinks perceived weakness on you. Um, maybe he tries to bluff and take it, or maybe he's got that third deuce and he doesn't yeah. believe you have a king. Maybe he's got maybe he thinks you have queens and you're afraid, or maybe he thinks you have aces but you're just trying to control the pot. Maybe he has that deuce and then you give him a chance to bet into you. So I don't necessarily think that. If you bet and he doesn't have anything, he's folding. So I think you need to check here and see if he'll try to steal it from you. And if he if he has that third deuce, you're going to get all of his chips, maybe. And if he doesn't have that third deuce, then you're going to raise his bluff, and then he'll fold, and then or whatever. So I think uh, I think a check might be in order, just because of the fact that if he has any, if he has the deuce, he'll probably call your bet. But if he has the deuce and you don't bet. He's going to bet. So either way, you're going to get that money if he has a deuce. You're not going to miss a bet. Um, if he's missed everything, you're not going to get anything unless you check to him. So I think I think at this point, you probably need to check and see if he'll try to steal it. Hmm. All right. Yeah, my instinct was to, to bet here because I would think a check is fishy. But, um, you know, normally you slow down on the turn, not the river, when you're bluffing. But, um but I think you're right. I think uh, if he's got any kind of hand, uh, he's going to bet. And if he doesn't have any kind of hand, you weren't going to get him to call anyhow. So, Well, before you say anything else, let's imagine our villain here has um, the, the mindset that you had pocket queens. And now the king comes and the villain thinks that you could put us now on ace king of hearts. And that's why we were playing this hand. It's not really a re-re-raising hand pre-flop, but it's certainly a hand that would keep calling this with ace-king with two overs and a nut flush draw. He may make these calls. And now that you've seen that king, you're afraid, so you check your queens. And now he So there, there are scenarios right. that could check right. that river to make it not look fishy. And I think that's one of them. That's, so, that's true. Right? Oh. So I like that. I like All right. Check. So check. All right. Um, all right, so our hero says, uh, now my thoughts are on to how to get his whole stack here. If I, my read on the turn is right, he will bet his hand for value if I check. And given the pot size, he may well shove. So I check. Yes. Button bets 8,000. Yes. Let's hope he doesn't have quads. <laughs> <laughs> so you're shoving, right? Or you're yeah, shoving? I'm shoving. I'm shoving. Yeah. 
Yeah, at this point, yeah. I mean, that's the only hand that beats us, so might as well do it, right? Um, so that's exactly what our hero does. Uh, Button tanks for a while before folding and telling me he had the ace of diamonds, deuce of diamonds. Wow. Says, I believe him since we discussed the hand quite a bit during the night. I'm just wondering what my best move on the river was when I was first act. His bet was smaller than I expected. And once I raised all in over the top, it was pretty obvious what my hand was. Maybe a shove would have been better or even a small bet that could look weak. Like I had ace ace and just wanted to get the showdown and embolden him to raise over the top. Yeah, I don't know. I think you you got the max out of that hand. I mean, the only way you would have gotten more is if you made a mistake earlier and shoved, and he calls with three aces, three deuces, and then you river, you suck out on the river. That's the only way I think you get more money out of this hand. I think you played it probably the way you're going to get the most amount of maybe. Well, yeah. being results oriented, I think you would have got more by by betting on the river. Now that we know the hand, but I would have put the likelihood of an ace deuce. Much lower than some other holdings, I think. Um, because I mean, at that point, now he has to put you on a boat. So now he's going to think, "Hey, do you have sevens? Do you have eights? He's probably already thought about that. Um, the king is not a great card to come for that hand, but you know, I mean, we, we've been we raised pre-flop, and then we we've been betting out every single street. Um, we could have done that with aces. We could have done that with queens. We could have done other pocket pair that this ace deuce has beat. Uh, I don't know. I mean, if we have that hand, we're at ace-deuce, and Dean shoves on us. I don't know, because here's the deal. Do. Here's the deal. If if we, as the, the deuce holder, if we fold like we do to him shoving now when you only have, I mean, how much did he have left? 5,000? I mean, if he can't call... What's sixteen thousand and twenty five is you know so you're looking at forty one and then and then on top of the shove so another seven so you're looking at almost a, if he can't call like six or seven thousand for a fifty thousand pot with three deuces and an ace kicker how's he gonna call when we shove on the river I, I don't I don't know if he's afraid to call the last five thousand would he be afraid to call his last thirteen thousand to a shove on the river you know and say oh I must be beat you must have I don't know. I don't think you get more money than what he did. Maybe I could be wrong. I, I don't. I'm not good at this thing, so. Well, we probably got well, we got more than eight. You know, I I don't know how much more you're right. I mean, yeah, but still, it's a nice pot. It's so. a nice pot. It, it, but it, again, it it goes back to this ace deuce. He called a re re raise on the button with a suited ace, and you know it's early on, so those things are and it's of our tournament. You know what I mean? Those things have to be taken under consideration. Knowing ahead of time, if you knew he had a deuce, would you have played the hand the same way? No, but you know, in this case, I, I just, I, I, the only way you get more money is if you shove on that turn. I think I really don't think this guy is going to call your shove on the river because he folded for five grand to win fifty. You know, what I mean, to me, it seems like that's a no-brainer. Now you've got three aces, but even this guy had aces. You know, what I mean, the only very specific hand beats you now is king king. Or walking the dog with seven seven or eight eight, you know, it, it just, I don't know. If that guy can fold for eight for five grand at the end, then I think he folds to our shove at the end because it's the same message you're sending. I think you got the max. The only way you get more is if you shove earlier, I think, and then suck out. But that's just me. I don't know. Possible. Yep. Yeah. I'm Chris Casenza, and I'm Scott Long. We'll see you at the tables. 
Anti-Up is a production of antiupmagazine.com. Contact the show at podcast at antiupmagazine.com or call our hotline at 206-338-6344. If you'd like to advertise, send an email to advertising at antiupmagazine.com or call 727-331-4335. Some music used in this episode comes courtesy of the Podsafe Music Network.